welcome back to the Clarity Podcast. This podcast is all about providing clarity, insight, and encouragement for life and mission. And my name is Aaron Santemeyer, and I'm going to be your host. Today, we have the phenomenal opportunity to have our friend of the podcast, Dick Foth, back with a session of Back Channel with Foth. And then we're going to jump into our interview with Dr. Sherwood Lingenfelter, where we discuss uh, ministering culturally. This is the third time Sherwood's been on with us, and uh, just enjoyed spending some time with him again. Dick, so excited to have you back with us. Thank you so much. It's always a joy to be here. Dick, I got two questions um, for you today. First, both of it seems around decision-making. The first one is, how do you measure whether the decision you made was successful or not? That's question number one. I think my response is decision related to what? Okay. What's, what's the decision about? Okay. Um, you know, I can make a decision to have um, oats for breakfast or bacon and eggs for <laughs> breakfast. That's not like critical to my life unless one of the other continues in big time overtime. But that's the, that's the question that I would ask. What is the decision related to? Okay. And what's your standard for success? Because success is not a word, a freestanding word that you find in scripture, really. Okay. That's not that idea. That idea of success also has to do with something that can be measured. Okay. We're in a day of metrics. Okay. And I I really I really like that applied to some things. I I don't like it as well when it's applied to me. See, that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> so so I think um, I would need a little more definition as to what the decision was about. But okay. the the idea of uh, how do I measure something, I think, is is valid uh, in 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 a lot of um, in a lot of arenas. When I was president of a college we were measured right, left, and center, whether it was by the state or by the federal government or by the accrediting society or by the churches who supported the particular college we were doing. Everybody was measuring us. The question is, what standard do you use for measuring yourself? And I think there's a corollary question related to this. Yes. Um, Yep. Yep. And the second question was, is looking at whether it turned out okay enough. Um, Maybe I got lucky. I do not want to second guess my decisions, but do not want to be building false confidence either. I'm I'm saying, but if you got lucky, good on you. I think, I think the challenge, the challenge for me historically has been, how do you measure the kingdom? Hmm. How do you measure God at work in me? Well, I think there are some measurements for God at work in me. You know, when people see a change in attitude or in focus or or what I use to make decisions, what's important yeah. to me. Yeah. You know, I was in a I was with a group of businessmen um, in a in a northwestern city a few months back. Just a group of a dozen guys or so, and somebody was saying, uh, "I'm I'm in tension between my work and my family, and so forth, and so." And I have these biblical values, etc. And I, I just sort of blurted out, "If you will show me your calendar and your credit card statement, I will tell you what your values are." Hmm. Uh, that that's a way to measure yeah. where, where yeah. I spend my time, where I spend my money. Yeah. That's a measurement. And I think the the thing that has challenged me is that oftentimes we take the kingdom of God and lay the scientific method over it. We say, Hmm. if we can't measure it, then it must not be happening. Hmm. We did a church plant and it didn't grow very fast. Okay. Or we did that. I mean, when, when you read stories of missions back 150 years ago and people served someplace you know for eight years and they only have one quote convert right uh, was that a failure you know that sort of well not to the guy who came to jesus it wasn't a failure you know? <laughs> so, so i think that i think the thing that that really helped me was in my first meeting with um 
Richard Halverson, who was chaplain of the Senate, this is back in the mid-90s when we moved to Washington, D.C., we're sitting in the Senate dining room, and I'm having this conversation. And he said, um, I said, talk to me about the church, because he was, he was Mr. Presbyterian. He, was, he, he had great stature in that, uh, in that fellowship. And uh, we're sitting there, and he takes a salt shaker, one of those clear salt shakers, holds it over his meat. And you know, Henry Kissinger sitting over in the corner, Diane Feinstein and John McCain, you know, and he drops, he drops his salt shaker on his meat. And he said, the challenge with the church Nick, is that oftentimes it's mostly about the shaker. Wow. And, and unless the salt is out of that, and hmm. there are books written about that, yeah. um, it isn't doing its work. And when the salt is doing its work, it's mostly invisible. Wow. And he said, you need to understand that what you do in the kingdom and with your life has mostly to do with in, inputs, not hmm. outcomes. Hmm. You're responsible for the inputs, not for the outcomes. Now, the challenge is when we get those documents from our missions board saying how many this and how far that and right. what's that that puts us in huge tension. So yeah. I'm going to leave it there and let people figure it out. <laughs> Dick, we appreciate it. And uh, thanks for challenging us today and uh, to be salt out of a salt shaker um, for sure. Before we jump into the interview with Dr. Sherwood Ligenfelder, I do want to thank our friends of the podcast, Nate and Tammy Lashway. They're the ones that asked me about doing a, another interview with Dr. Sherwood. Great idea. Tammy did a lot of the back work, actually all the back work on getting the questions for this podcast. And we've, I've just appreciated them and their support of the podcast since the beginning. So we, we thank the Lashways for that. Well, there's no time better than now to get started. So here we go. Greetings and welcome back to the Clarity Podcast. So excited to have our friend of the podcast, Dr. Sherwood Lingenfelder, who has been on with us twice. And um, I, after his last time on the podcast, um, Leadership in the Way of the Cross, I had some people send um, some emails and asking if we could do one more um, and discuss his book, Ministering Cross-Culturally, <laughs> Incarnational Model for Personal Relationships. D Dr. Sherwood, great to have you with us today. Thank you, Aaron. It's great to be with you, and uh, it's wonderful to join you again uh, over these many, many miles, but it seems like face-to-face. -face. Yes, for sure. The, the joys of technology, when it works. That's right. <laughs> Could you just go ahead and just take a minute just to introduce yourself, maybe if somebody hasn't listened to the first two episodes? Sure. Um, I'm Sherwood Lingenfelter. I'm a social anthropologist. Uh, I... Um, have uh, had a long life journey, uh, some of it um, wandering in the wilderness, but God in his mercy met me in the wilderness and led me to repentance. And, uh, and so um, I found uh, a relationship with Marvin Mayers back in 1975, uh, when my wife and I went to the Summer Institute of Linguistics in Norman, Oklahoma. And uh, Marv Mayers uh, led me back to the Lord. He basically mm -hmm. loved me and and I, uh, I got to know him as an anthropologist, and he challenged me with his you know, whole idea of basic values. Hmm. And, uh, and I then uh, <clears throat> learned some of those perspectives from him, and I went back to the island of Yap, where I'd done research before. I uh, went there in 7980, and uh, lo and behold, the missionaries on Yap uh, gave me the opportunity to process with them the value wow. conflicts that we were all having with the local people. Yeah. And uh, that's how the book Ministering Cross-Culturally was born. Awesome. Uh, and so I marvelous with the Lord now, but I'm grateful for the way that he touched me in such a profound way. And then how uh, that led to um, my engaging with missionary colleagues yeah. uh, and friends and uh, learning from them and learning from the local people. And that was the birth of that book, Ministering Cross-Culturally. Yeah. And it's a, it's a required reading. Um, I know for many of us, as we've hit the field, I've had it for 22 years. Um, it's been on my shelf and pulled out uh, many times and it's traveled with me from, from the United States to France, France to Burkina Faso, Burkina Faso back to the United States, United States to Madagascar, and now here to Kenya. So it's, it's been on the journey with me. So. Well, that's great, Aaron. You know, it's interesting. Uh, 
that book has been blessed by the Lord in such a profound way. And uh, Baker issued a third edition of it uh, just in 2016. Wow. Uh, and each time I've been able to revise it a bit and improve some things and maybe uh, do other things not quite so well. But uh, it's, it's been a wonderful journey and God is still using it in a wonderful yeah. way. For sure. For sure. First question, actually, I was in a in a, a meeting just the other day and someone brought up this concept of what it means to be a 150 percent person. Um, and uh, it, he was unpacking that concept as we were talking about ministering and working. Um, how do we know which parts of our first culture to let go in order to embrace and make room for our new culture and this idea of 150 percent person? And are, what are some practical ways we can begin to do this? Well, in thinking about that, let me just first say that uh, the 150% person idea came actually from an anthropologist who was studying Native Americans. Uh, hmm. and, and he recognized that they basically had adapted to English culture, but they were still very much part of their own culture. And as he looked at them and he saw how they were able to move back and forth from one to the other, he concluded that they had lost some of their culture, but they had gained much more. And yeah. to me, that was a very interesting idea that we can add to our repertoire, that we can gain much more uh, than we already know by learning from the culture we're working in. And that will require giving up some of the things that we have in, in our own cultural life, uh, because sometimes the, country, the tension is great. For but sure. uh, <clears throat> Typically, what I've found is that uh, if, I, if I get irritated about something, uh, that that often is a signal that there's something going on here that I don't understand. And uh, typically, it's, it's a conflict about how people are behaving or what people are saying that I don't like. And so what I've found is that the first thing I have to do is to name my irritation, mm. to basically say, okay, uh, this is something that I need to think through and find out more about. And once I name it, then I know how to think about it. I know how to ask questions about it. I know how to pray about it. Uh, and it gives me an opportunity to engage with people uh, on a topic, uh, that, something that irritates me. Yeah. Uh, another thing I've found is surprise. Um, you know, Sometimes we're going along and things are going fine. All of a sudden people do something. Wow, wow what in the world is this? <laughs> What's happening? And, and how can I uh, think about this? Well, surprise is another thing that is happens to us because of cultural differences uh, and uh, and people doing things that are outside of what we expect. They're not part of the way that we we ordinarily think about life. And so if I, again, name it, OK, what surprised me about this? Then I can begin to ask people, can you help me understand this? Uh, can you uh, give me some idea about what's going on here? Uh, you know, this was intriguing and, and I'd like to know more about it. Uh, and so so that's basically uh, um, the, the two, two areas. Uh, yeah, I, I think the third area could be being rejected. You know, hmm. when somehow people uh, reject you or or say have have a problem with what you're doing or what you're saying, uh, then um, that's an area where you could can begin to try to understand why, what's going on. So yeah, for sure. And that idea of 150% person, does that just happen naturally? You shared the uh, insight from the the gentleman that studied Native Americans. And so basically it was 75%, 75%, I guess. Um, is that just uh, practical things that you need to engage in a culture or how have you seen that work? You yeah, know, it doesn't, have, it doesn't happen naturally. It really doesn't. Okay. It's something that you, you have to be intentional about learning. You have to be intentional about surviving. Uh, you know, those Native Americans, they couldn't work hmm. uh, in English jobs if they didn't learn how to do it the English way. Yeah. They couldn't become a part of English culture unless they were willing to take the risk and to dive in and to to do what the English were asking them to do. And, and I think that's really the key thing we need to understand, that this is not a natural process. Hmm. This is a process that takes our effort and takes our, our commitment to it because we can just say, well, these people are crazy. We, we, we're just going to ignore them. In fact, I can, I can tell you a story. When I was in Brazil, doing research with a missionary with Wycliffe Bible Translators. Uh, I was awakened at four o'clock in the morning by a man shouting. 
Uh, and and it sounded like he was in my house. I mean, <laughs> in the jungle, there were we were living living in little houses that were five feet off the ground. There were no walls, just thatched roof. And so he was shouting, but he was in the place right next door. But I sat bolt upright on the floor. And what in the world is going on? <clears throat> Four o'clock in the morning, mind you. So at breakfast time, I asked my missionary colleague, well, what was going on this morning at four o'clock? He said, I don't know. I don't care. I'm sick of that kind of stuff. I don't even listen anymore. I said, I'm an anthropologist. I need to know what was happening. Uh, so find out. So he did. He went out and, we, and he asked. And uh, what he found out was that the, the man was yelling at the women in the village. And he was saying, you women are lazy. You're not working. You're not going out and doing what you need to do. He said, some of you are always coming and asking me for black glue. You can go get your own black glue. I don't want to give you black glue anymore. <laughs> and somebody else across the village answered, yeah, I'm angry too about the same thing. And so this conversation at four in the morning about lazy women uh, was going on between men who were uh, frustrated with the fact that they, they were being pressed to, to work for more than their own family. Wow. Uh, well, you know, that was something we explored then further. Yeah. We tried to understand, okay, what were the expectations for men and women? And, uh, and why was he complaining at four in the morning? And I told him, I always want to know what people are arguing about because that helps me know what's important to them. Wow. Uh, and so if, if I had been like him, I said, I don't care. I don't want to pay any attention to these arguments. I'm not going to listen to it. You don't learn. Wow. You have to be intentional about learning. Yeah. And you have to be, what I'm hearing you say is too, you have to be able to, willing to walk in the tension because you said it's this easier. Well, is in, in that example, it's easier to ignore it, I think, than it is to be to engage and walk in that tension. Is that correct? Yes, yes that's right. That's right. Okay. Good deal. Good deal. One of the other questions someone sent in was in chapter four, um, you quote Charles Kraft, um, and he summarized Jesus' ministry approach as receptor-oriented and personal. What does this mean, and what are some ways that we can adopt a model that's receptor-oriented and personal? I just had a conversation last week with a friend of mine who was a missionary in Sri Lanka. And uh, we, we're, we're basically here in, Land, in, in Lancaster County, we're looking at possibly welcoming Afghan refugees oh, wow. and what it would take for us to be able to welcome Afghan refugees. And because they're Muslim, we were talking about, OK, how do we have conversation with Muslims? And uh, <clears throat> he said when he was in Sri Lanka, uh, an elderly Muslim man came up and met him on the street and, uh, and he asked him, what are you doing here? And he said, I'm a missionary. I'm here to share Jesus with people. And uh, the Muslim man said to him, well, uh, you know, um, I'm, well, I'm, I jumped myself. Before he said that, he said, are you a deeply committed Muslim? And the, and the man said, yes, I am. And I said, he said, would you be interested in me to know about your faith? He hmm. said, yes, I would. He said, well, I'm a deeply committed Christian. And I would be interested in you knowing much more about my faith. <laughs> and so in that, he said, we became the best of friends. Uh, oh. At that point on, we walked together. We talked together. Uh, I shared my faith. He shared his faith. And we had a wonderful supporting friendship. And he said, later on, when things got tough and some radical Muslims came after me, he protected me. Wow. Because I was his friend and we had a relationship where we were openly talking to one another. Now, that's what craft really means about this whole notion of receptor oriented and personal ministry. Hmm. We think about the people first. We're willing to listen to them first. We're willing to hear their stories and find out what they believe. Uh, and then we ask if we have permission to tell them our stories. And in that uh, we gain uh, a relationship which gives us freedom to share Christ and to be Christ to people. And uh, we've respected them, and so they respect us in return. Kraft hmm. went on to say, read his book, he, he has written about this in many ways, but he talks about the fact that we need to learn to teach like Jesus taught. And Jesus always taught with stories. He taught with questions. He, he didn't go the Roman road, yeah. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Uh, the four spiritual laws. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's not how we dealt with people. 
Yeah. He dealt with them through stories, through engaging them personally, through uh, pushing them deeply on the issues that they were re really concerned about. Hmm. So Kraft said, we should learn to teach like Jesus taught. So wow. that's how I remember him. And you, you talked about that. You just shared about asking permission to share and uh, showing that respect. Culturally, have you found that to be important to, to ask that question? Can, can we share? You know, um, I, I have very different experiences in my life in very different places in different yeah. ways. Uh, in some places, people are just wide open and, yeah. and they want to know and they tell you that. Uh, yeah. In other places, uh, they don't want to talk to you about these things at all. Yeah. And so you have to discern mm. the, the, the people. Yeah. You have to discern where they are. Uh, and, and in discerning where they are, then you have to figure out, okay, how is it that I can approach them? Yeah. Uh, typically, <laughs> if, if you're in a place where people are hungry for the gospel, uh, you don't have much to worry about because right. they just want, want to hear and, right. and they're eager to listen to you and want to hear what you have to say. If, on the other hand, they're fearful of Christians, uh, yeah. then um, they uh, they basically, like the Muslim man, yeah. uh, you, you have to let them know that, hey, you're interested in them and you yeah. want to hear from them as well. Yeah. Uh, I was in the southern Philippines in a Muslim area many years ago, and uh, I walked into a mosque area with some missionary friends of mine, and, and there was a guy there uh, who was a Muslim missionary from Baghdad, hmm. and uh, he tried to convert me right on the spot. Uh -huh. <laughs> and so, you know, you have different experiences with people, yeah, but, for sure. uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things where the, the Muslim neighbors that we had, uh, we really wouldn't, uh, you know, confront them with the gospel, but uh, they, they, they might come to us and say, can you help me with some money? Yeah. And then I, then here's what I would say to my missionary colleagues. They said, sure, but let me first tell you why I'm here. Yeah. I'm here because I've been sent by Jesus to bring the message of the good news of Christ. Hmm. And, uh, you know, the money that I have to give you really belongs to him. Yeah. And so I'm going to give you a gift today, but I want you to know it's not from me. It's from Jesus wow. uh, because Jesus loves you. And Jesus wants you to know uh, about him. Hmm. And that's why he's brought me here. That's my wow. whole purpose in being here to bring wow. good news of Christ. Wow. Uh, and so, Giving alms is not just giving alms, it's giving the gospel with the alms. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's basically letting people know that we're here because of Christ and we're here to share Christ. And so how you go about this really is something, again, you study. Yeah. You figure, who are the people? What are they like? And how are they responding? Yeah. And in what are the best ways that I can see the Lord opening the door to me? Yeah. The couple that I was working with in the Philippines, they had Muslims coming to them every day to ask for something. Hmm. <laughs> and I asked them, how many times have you shared the gospel with them? Never. Hmm. Why not? Well, I'm afraid. Hmm. Well, what better door to open than, hey, I'm giving you something, uh, but I'm supposed to give you the Christ. <laughs> <laughs> and it transformed their lives. Yeah. They basically realized, okay, this was an opportunity to share the gospel because people had needs. Yeah. And they were asking for things. And they never thought to share the gospel with what they gave. Wow. Uh, and so that's really, again, you just have to figure out what's going on with you. That's, that's why studying the, the people is so important. Yeah. And that's what you're just showing about, sharing about, about improving our, um, our skills and identifying cultural cues. Um, you've wove that in there. Do you have any wisdom maybe, or, or about some steps we can take to identify and improve our skills and, and, and identifying these cultural cues? Uh, well, you know, because I'm an anthropologist, um, uh, this is a habit to me, but <clears throat> what, what I would say is that, all of us as Christians need to become uh, students of the people around us. In other words, if we don't try to understand them, we don't learn to know them, if we don't try to figure out who they are, we really can't uh, basically meet their needs in Christ. And so, <clears throat> but I would say this, I consciously, uh, when I'm in another cultural context, 
try to take every opportunity I have to learn about culture. Hmm. And, and I'll share a little story about this. I, I was working in Suriname uh, hmm. with uh, Wycliffe Bible translators again, and I was asked to go visit a missionary in his tribal allocation. And, uh, and he didn't want me there. He didn't even want me to be with him. And, but when I arrived, he said, well, I have to take you around and introduce you to people. I said, before we go, let's talk about what you're translating right now. He said, what for? I said, well, you know, it, it might help us. And so I pushed him. And so he told me he was translating in the Gospel of Luke. And, and I said, what are you having trouble with? He said, well, I'm having trouble with uh, the whole not idea of being filled with the Spirit. And I really don't know how to answer that question. I said, okay, good, good. Okay, now we're ready. Let's go visit. And so we went through the village and he stopped and he talked to people and, uh, and he introduced me to them and had conversations with them. And I don't understand a word of what he's saying and what he's doing. And suddenly he says to me, oh, this man's talking about a woman who's spiritually possessed here in this house. Uh, and uh, he said, I got to talk more. I said, go ahead, talk. And, and so he began to dialogue with him. And when he finished, he said, wow, now I have new insights on how to translate what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Wow. Uh, now, if we had, I hadn't forced him to basically think about a visit as a learning process, yeah. he would not have done that. Uh, yeah. He wouldn't have even thought about what he was translating. It's just, oh, I got a chore. I got to go visit people. Yeah. Well, it's always an opportunity to learn. And, and if you're aware of, okay, what do, what do I need to learn? What am I trying to do? How is God working in me here? Then when you go out and you start talking to people, the Lord will bring up the stuff that you yeah. need to know. Uh, yeah. And so taking every opportunity to learn about culture, don't consider anything a waste of time, is really a, 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 an important thing. Yeah. Now, I will confess that I've sat through long, boring conversations with people <laughs> everywhere I've been. And I've, I have been the times I haven't learned anything from them that was new. Yeah. But that's part of the cost. Yeah. It's relationship building. <laughs> and so, you know, it's, it's not like you, you continue getting new gems every moment you're with people. <laughs> it, it's an effort. And sometimes it's boring. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, you know, if you if you take one of the things I've learned to do is change the topic, hmm. tell a story yeah. uh, of my own experience and then ask, yeah. OK, now you tell me your story. Wow. Uh, and and in that, then we start engaging in something that's more substantive in terms of what I, I'm interested in. Right. Uh, because people are social and they like stories. Yeah. And so uh, I found telling the story about how I got married in Africa and made the Africans just hilarious laughter. <laughs> Because at the, when my wife and I came back from our honeymoon, my father-in-law asked for the keys mm. to the house. And she gave him the keys. And they said, okay, Sherwood, you're responsible for her, and you can't bring her back. <laughs> in, in Africa, they said, what in the world? Because they're basically required by their father-in-laws to come back with gifts and come back with this and come back with that. You know, it's a continuous thing when you have bride wealth, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, it, it was, uh, I got all kinds of new information because I told that story. I'm sure. Uh, and, I'm you know, sure. he, what he was just saying was that, you know, uh, you can't run back home. You, you've got to solve your own problems. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but that's not in an African way. Yeah. <laughs> and so you, you, as, as we, we can tell stories, and those stories basically enable us to engage people. In your inquisitiveness, is that something you've always had as an anthropologist, or is that something you've developed? Because what I hear you saying, you're very inquisitive, and you, you're asking the right questions, and you, you're engaging people, and you're um, yeah, engaging with people. And so that takes, to me, takes a very inquisitive nature. And so is that something you've developed, something you've always had, or is that just part of the gifting of being an anthropologist? You know... Um... I don't think I always had it, you okay. know, honestly, I, um, I didn't even know what anthropology was when I went to college. Uh, okay. And uh, I took a course on cultural anthropology just on a dare. And, 
the professor was David Winter, who's a younger brother of Ralph Winter, and yeah. and he was an anthropologist, and he basically told us, if you want to do ministry cross cultural, you can't do it without understanding culture. Hmm. And I didn't even know what culture was. Yeah, you know, I I didn't really know how to engage this. I loved the stories, I loved the topic, and I I just thought, okay, this is this is something I can do because it just resonated with me. Uh, and, and I didn't even major in anthropology at Wheaton. I majored in English literature, but I went on to, gr- to graduate school in anthropology. And, and there I basically began to just internalize this whole thing that we, we don't understand anything about other people. We don't have any idea of the, the complexity of their culture and their way of life. And the only way we can learn is just by sitting with them and listening to them and learning from them. Yeah. Now, actually, I am a pretty good listener. Hmm. You know, that comes naturally to me. Okay. Uh, it, it's something that uh, I'm just more quiet than most people. I wouldn't seem like it now, but I am in a social setting. I'm listening. Yeah. Uh, and so <clears throat> I, I always have been a pretty good listener, but I've never been focused and intentional about listening. Okay. Uh, and so with anthropology, I learned to be focused and intentional. Yeah. And, and the other thing I learned is that, um, uh, I, I really just need to have somebody that's a cultural coach. Uh, and uh, I, I can maybe talk about that more later, but you know, I, um, it's, it's not something that came naturally to me. I had to work at it. Uh, and that's actually an encouragement for all of us. So it, that, that it can be something that can grow and it can be something we can develop yeah. over time. And so that I do definitely think that's a, that's an encouragement. Someone sent in one of the quotes um, from, it was actually on page 79. It says, a common error in cross-cultural ministry is to assume that people understand us when they hear our words. We fail to see that deferring personal orientations can prevent mutual understanding. Further, we assume that our style is the best one. And then uh, they sent some questions around that. How do we develop awareness of our assumptions in communication? Uh. Okay, as I think about this, uh, from my own perspective and point of view, uh, I, I make false assumptions all the time. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, and this is because I just assume that I know what other people are thinking. I did that with my children. I did that with my wife. I, I, I do it with the people that I work with. Uh, I assume I know what they're thinking. And, and I, I guess I'm not so unusual as a human being. I think other people assume that they know what I'm thinking too. Uh, And so in, in this, it's kind of an ingrained habit to make false assumptions. Uh, We, we assume we know. In fact, I read a a psychologist, a Roman Catholic psychologist years and years ago, by the name of Jerome Powell. And he talked about the fact that all of us as young people, uh, begin to develop an awareness of people around us and we form our understandings of what's going on uh, based upon inadequate data. Uh, Mm. And then we build a a perspective on others on that data and we keep it the rest of our lives and we don't test it and we don't challenge it. And, And I found, yeah, that can be true. You know, that we don't challenge our own assumptions. We don't challenge our thinking about ourselves and about others. And so, uh, I just think that if we rec- if we assume that we are making false assumptions, then we can work on fixing it. Okay, yeah, for sure. Now, uh, for me, one of the most powerful passages that I have uh, learned, uh, I I focused on this uh, probably about 1998 uh, when I was going through a major crisis in my role as provost at Biola, uh, and uh, I made some false assumptions about people there. Uh, I made some false assumptions about motives and uh and i i did things that i later regretted badly i was reading dallas willard's book the divine conspiracy Hmm. and willard has a chapter in there called the community of prayerful love and in it he basically does an exegesis of matthew chapter 7 in which jesus says do not judge with the measure you use it will be used against you uh how can you take a, a a speck out of somebody else's eye when you have a plank in your own eye. And in looking at that, I realized that I had made false assumptions about people Hmm. and I was judging them 
And this was a plank in my eye. I could not see clearly what was going on because I made false assumptions. Uh, and then Willard goes on to say in this chapter that the antidote to that is what Jesus tells us to do as opposed to what not to do. And to, to, to do is to ask, seek, and knock. Now, when we read that, we, we automatically assume that Matthew is talking about the same thing that Luke is talking about when Luke goes on to talk about prayer. But Matthew doesn't do that. Hmm. Matthew ends that whole section by saying, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And so the ask, seek, and knock is what you have to do instead of making false assumptions, hmm. instead of judging. Uh, we're given the command, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. And so basically what I've learned is the best question I can ask is, can you help me understand? Hmm. That's good. Can you help me understand why you said that? Can you help me understand what you're thinking? Can you help me understand uh, more about what you want to say? Wow, One good. of my biggest problems is that I hear a question and I think I know what the people are asking and I don't. Wow. <laughs> and so I really need to stop and say, can you help, can you help me understand your question? Hmm. Uh, I'm not sure I know what you're asking me. Okay. Uh, and, and so when I go there, and begin to clarify the question, I realized I started on the wrong track. Wow. I didn't know really what they were thinking and what they were asking. Uh, and, uh, and so oftentimes I'm quick to give an answer when I really need to think much more deeply about this and know better what the person is really asking. So Aaron, if you're asking a different question than the one I'm answering, stop me. No, that's exactly, and that's gold. That <laughs> because, because Can you help really, me under... Can you help me understand? That's gold for all of us. Um, it, to, it really to, is so important. It is. It is. It's vitally important. And how you you we're kind of I'm I'm jumping on you in questions. I apologize, but this I think when we come, I'll say not we. I'll I'll own it. West Virginia. I was a black and white thinker, um, and when I went overseas, I thought everything was black and white. And then you, you've challenged us to be more of a holistic thinker um, rather than a black and white type thinking. Um, how can we make that shift from black and white to more holistic? You know, uh, I think this is probably the hardest thing in the world for us to do hmm. um, because our minds work the way they work. We're wired in certain kinds of ways. And, uh, and, you know, in that, uh, <clears throat> there's nothing bad about that. It's all good. But what's bad about it is, that, is when we assume that everybody thinks like we think. Yeah. Uh, and, and that really is the challenge. Uh, I was reminded of this just um, yesterday. I had to write a letter of recommendation for uh, a person who's been a doctoral student of mine. And, uh, and in, in terms of this, the question was asked, well, uh, how effective is this person in learning from others? And as I thought about that question, I thought, you know, uh, that the challenge for us in learning is based upon this whole way that we think. Hmm. Uh, and uh, the particular person that uh, was in question here is what I would call a holistic thinker. Hmm. That person thinks about the big picture. And does a beautiful job in thinking about the big picture and sees the complexities of the big picture and is able to process the big picture in powerful and wonderful ways and is exceptional in those ideas and way of thinking. But when I ask him to do a dichotomous analytical task, he really struggled. It was so hard because that's not the way he thinks. It's not the way he works. Uh, <clears throat> and so it's one of those things where when we ask somebody to process in a way that they are not accustomed to, it pushes them into a whole new domain of, of being in which they don't feel competent, they don't feel capable, and they don't know how to do it. Sure. And so asking an analytic, dichotomistic thinker like me uh, to become holistic in the way I see things, I really have to get advice. I have to get help. Uh, one of the things that I've learned is that my wife is much more toward the holistic side than I am. Hmm. And so <clears throat> what I do is I ask her to help me. Uh, how would you approach this? What are some ways that you would, would handle this? And interestingly enough, she is so creative in this way as far as I'm concerned. She can see ways to come about, go about things that I can't. At the same time, I astonish her 
with the gifts that I have. How do you do that? <laughs> How do you get to where you're going, the way that you're going? And part of it is that we're just wired differently in the way we think. And the challenge is that when we exclude the others and we don't get advice from them, then we lose the gift that God has given us in the body of Christ. Uh, and so uh, it's important for us to recognize there's nothing wrong with the way that we have been wired. Uh, this is God's gift to us, and it has strengths to it. But at the same time, it's also a blind spot. Uh, and wow. and we, we need somebody to help us to see in the other way and to think in the other way. Uh, and so uh, what I said in this letter was that this man is incredibly gifted in this way. But if you want him to do these other kinds of things, you're going to have to provide some help, some hmm. support. Uh, and it's likewise for those of us that are black and white. If you want us to see things in a more holistic way, we need help. And if we recognize that, if we recognize that other people that see differently than we see, uh, and we really ask uh, them for help and perspective and how you would see it, then the Lord enables us to step out of our limitations and become part of the body and think about these things in the way that he's made us as a body as opposed to the way he's made us as individuals. Uh, so um, <clears throat> it's, is that part of, is that part of, you mentioned earlier about ask, uh, seeking out a cultural coach, would that be, would this kind of align with that? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's interesting because the, the whole idea of a cultural coach is you have to have somebody that can you can turn to and say, I need help. Uh, for me, everywhere I've gone, I'm always looking for a cultural coach. Uh, and I know that I need one because I don't really understand the culture that I'm working in. And it may be that I'm just there for a couple of days, uh, but I still need somebody to help me coach me in those few days. If I'm there for a longer term commitment, clearly I have to have somebody to be a cultural coach. And, and, and you don't always know who uh, is the right kind of person. And so um, one thing that you can do is just ask around, you know, who is a really good under, who is an expert in your culture, understands hmm. the way things work around here uh, and make a friendship with them and say, you know, I've heard you're an expert. Uh, yeah. Can you help me? Uh, it may be that you, you just, who is somebody here that you really trust? Uh, that's a really good question. Somebody you trust because the person you trust means that they're doing things in the way that people value hmm. and they see things in the way that people value. And so if you can get a personal coach that people trust, then, then you will learn how to gain their trust. And that person will coach you in a way that will be beneficial to you. Sure. My story of the, the Muslim man in Sri Lanka is really an illustration of that. What my friend found was that this man became his coach. This man became a person that he could turn to that would advise him and guide him through the complexities of the whole Muslim culture in that context. Uh, and God just gifted him with that person early on in his stay there. Uh, but we, we just need that. We, we have to have somebody that can guide us and give us uh, insights and whatever the cultural situation might be. So what I hear you saying is it's not like once we reach a certain point, because you said you're, you're asked for cultural coaches even for today. So it's not like you get to a certain point of learning and say, hey, I don't need a cultural coach. I've arrived. It's something that is valuable for us to seek all throughout our life. Is that, would that be correct? You're absolutely right. And here's what I would say that uh, I served in academic leadership for 25 years. Uh, and it was only in the last three, that I really understood the incredible value of having a group of people, a small group of people that I could turn to for help. Hmm. I read a book by Ronald Heifetz uh, called um, um, Leadership on the Line. And in that book, he says this. He says that in leadership positions, you face so many difficult challenges. You need a group of people that you can trust that will correct you. Hmm. Uh, and uh, he said, you, you just need to find three or four people hmm. that you can turn to and you can say, can you help me in a situation? I've made many, many mistakes in my life of leadership. And when I read Heifetz's book, I thought, oh, man, you know, why didn't I read this 20 years earlier? Well, it wasn't written 20 years earlier. <laughs> but the, the key thing is when I began to do this, 
Hmm. I found that I got so much wisdom from the body of Christ around me Hmm. that I needed that wisdom. And, you know, I remember people saying, sure, don't go there. Hmm. Uh, And and I listened this time. Hmm. Uh, and, And it was beautiful to see how the Holy Spirit worked in that. And so the scriptures tell us all the time we're part of the body of Christ. But in America, we don't believe it. You know, we believe we're supposed to do it ourselves. Uh, And, you know, I love my dad, but the worst thing my dad taught me was that you can do it, you can do it by yourself. Wow. Uh, And and I realized that that's not true, that in the body of Christ, we need the others in the body. Yeah. When I learned to consult my wife and ask her for advice, I got better. And when I learned to consult others in the body of Christ around me, uh, and particularly those that are not my own culture, yeah. uh, and get their advice, I got better. Yeah. Because these are people that God has given to us that enable us to be much more than we can be on ourselves. Wow. So, Valuable, valuable, valuable. One last question for you today. We're, I've taken more of your time than I asked. Um, one of the tensions that global workers quickly notice is the difference in views of time. Um, you share that we must adapt to time and event priorities of the people with whom we work. Um, what advice would you give a time-oriented person who is now living in an event-oriented culture? Um, yeah, just some advice on that going from time-oriented um, Westerner, West Virginian like me to an event-oriented uh, culture. Well, I would just try to make this brief. You have to live with yourself and you have to live with the other people. It's and true. so you, you have to work on solutions that enable you to do that. And if you're time oriented, uh, you will be driven crazy internally when when you can't manage your time. And so you have to figure out how you're going to navigate the two. Uh, the story that I like to tell on this is the last time I lived on the island of Yap was 1979 and 80. And I had 10 guys working with me and they're all very event oriented. And to be on time in Yap means to be two hours late in America. <laughs> so, uh, so how do I live with this? And what do I do with this? And I'm, I'm working with these 10 guys, and I, I need regular checking with them in terms of what they do. So I decided that I would give them one appointment. Everybody come at noon. Uh, now, I knew none of them would come at noon. In their world, they're just <laughs> men-oriented. Uh, and, and I knew that I, didn't, I wouldn't even plan on that. I wouldn't even look for anybody until about 2 in the afternoon. And so from 12 to 2, I'm doing other work because I don't expect anybody to come. If they yeah. come, of course, I would stop. Right. But typically they don't. Yeah. And when somebody does come, I know I have to stop. And whatever I'm doing, I just have to sit and check. Yeah. Uh, because you can't begin work right away on, on this island. You have to talk to each other. And so we sit and talk, and it might be a half an hour before anybody else comes. Uh, but we're just sitting and visiting, and I can't do any more work during that time. I have to visit. The second guy may come, and then there are three of us talking, and we have to continue to talk because, you know, it's just part of new person comes, we have to visit with each other. Uh, an hour may go by, but another guy comes. Finally, there are three guys. At that point now, I have permission to work. <laughs> <laughs> I can say, okay, which one of you is in a hurry? Well, nobody's in a hurry. Uh, Then I'll say, well, who wants to go first? And whoever wants to go first, I will take them aside and I'll sit with them. And over the next 15, 20 minutes, I'll review their census work for that past month or that past two weeks uh, and talk to them about it, find out what they did. The other two guys are talking to each other. That's just fine. They have somebody to talk to. Yeah. And uh, then uh, somebody else shows up. Then there are three guys to talk to. So I finish with the first guy. I come back. He now joins the group. Uh, And I ask, who wants to go next? And so the next person comes. And, you know, so in this, this worked beautifully for me. I realized I did this every other Saturday for six months Hmm. uh, because I needed to check their work. Uh, I needed this relationship with them. But I understood their culture. And so... uh, when uh, I was waiting for them to come, I was homeschooling my son. <laughs> I had to do that. And when they came, he was ecstatic because he could go play. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and and, uh, and I could deal with them. So I was time oriented. Yeah. But I was basically 
managing my time in a way that I could adapt to their time and yeah. serve them in the way that worked best for them. Yeah. And so obviously every story is different, but yeah. what I'm trying to say is that you have to live with yourself, Yeah. Uh, but you also have to live with them and you got to yeah. try to figure out how you can basically manage those two things in a way that gives them joy and gives you joy as well. So. Amen. Good word. It's always a joy to spend some time with you and learn from your wisdom and your insight and your experience. I love the stories. Um, I learn through stories as you've shared. And so it's, it's fascinating. Will you pray for us today? You pray that God will use the wisdom and insight you've shared with us um, to encourage um, missionaries. And uh, honestly, the other thing is, the, as much as America is changing, the, the concepts you're sharing about culture and it's as applicable in Cumberland, Maryland, or wherever we're at, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, as they are around the world. Um, it's We're becoming a, a global society, and it's so, so, so valuable. Will you pray for us today? Sure. Our gracious Father, we come to you today. We acknowledge that uh, we are just uh, humble human beings, Lord. And each of us is created in this unique and wonderful way by you. And Lord, you've gifted us uh, in our bodies and then by your spirit, Lord, to, um, to serve you uh, in ways that are just unique to each of us as persons. But at the same time, Lord, we are all cultural people. We participate in communities. And Lord, we have learned ways of life that uh, are good and are a blessing to us. But Lord, when we step out of that particular place and walk into a different uh, world, even a world that's close to us, Lord, uh, we sometimes don't understand. So Lord, help us to always remember that you love the people of the world. Help us, Lord, to remember that you uh, set forth uh, in the scriptures the issues that we need to guide us in our journey, Lord. You've told us that we need to love you first and then to love our neighbors as ourselves. And Lord, loving our neighbors as ourselves is a challenge. And Lord, it's one that we just pray that you would guide each one who's involved in listening on this particular uh, podcast, Lord, and to all of us that are listening and working in our own communities. Lord, help us to hear your spirit and to walk in your way. I thank you, Lord, for the scriptures that Show us, Lord, the path that we can take. Lord, I thank you especially for the instructions in the Gospels of how we are able to teach and to live and to walk with one another. We thank you, Lord, that because you are in our hearts, that out of our hearts come those things which are like you, uh, instead of the corruption and the evil which would come from that which we have uh, in the flesh. And so, Lord, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would lead us in the path of righteousness for your namesake. And Lord, that we could be the people of God ministering to others in ways that would be glorifying and honoring to you and a blessing to those who encounter. So it's in the name of Jesus, we seek your blessing and we thank you for your presence.